0: We started last week a series as uh, looking at the vision and the values of our church. And this week, as we are preparing for this next chapter, I think it's, it's a great time for us to be thinking about uh, what are those core values? What kind of church are we striving to be? And today's value uh, is an especially important one. It's one that we call being prayerfully dependent. that we long to be a people who know that they are helpless apart from God, and whose lives, as a result, are defined by prayer and communion with Him. And so we're going to look at Psalm 16 this morning to talk about this idea. And as we do, I hope what we're going to find out is that this value, this idea of prayerful dependence, is more than just some goal that we have set uh, to be something that defines our church, but it is actually something that is crucial for the life of every Christian, that it is something uh, that points to the deepest needs and longings of our hearts, that this is something that connects us uh, to what we want most deeply. How David says it at uh, uh, at the end of the psalm we just read, you make known to me the paths of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Dependence is the key to abundance. It's the key to a full life. It is the key to what we desire. And so today, I want us to look at this passage and consider three things. I want us to consider uh, what is it that prohibits us from becoming dependent people? So what are the the defeaters of dependence? Dependence. what are the disciplines that will help us become dependent people? And then finally, what are the dividends? What, what is the reward of a dependent life? So we're going to go with defeaters, disciplines, and dividends. That's, that's, that's pretty good alliteration, guys. I think you need to give me some credit. Um, you can remember that all week long. It took some time. Um, the defeaters, okay. So Psalm 16 is a prayer of David. And David, you may know, is the greatest king in the history of Israel, but he was also a man who was no stranger to hardship. He had plenty of difficult things in his life, and while this particular psalm isn't connected to any one of them, this is actually a prayer that deals with that daily reality of hardship. The daily reality of trusting God amidst the constant ups and downs of everyday life. And the prayer that he opens with is pretty much a universal prayer. He says, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. Preserve me. Protect me. Save me, because I take refuge in you. We all pray that prayer, right? We pray that prayer a hundred times a day. But oftentimes we don't pray that prayer to God. We pray that prayer to ourselves. We pray it to our own effort. We pray it to our plans and our schemes. We we pray it to our hard work and our self-reliance. We say, preserve me, O myself, for in me do I take refuge. The greatest enemy of our dependence upon God is this deep, seated self-reliance that rests in all of us. Our greatest defeater of dependence is our own self-reliance. We live in a society of doers. Do you know this? I was just reading this article uh, on the Harvard Business Review website, and uh, it was called, The Research is Clear, Long Hours Backfire for People and for Companies. And in this article, uh, the the author cited a bunch of statistics about how much Americans work. She said that, on average, about a little over 85% of men and over 67% of women in America work more than 40 hours a week at their jobs. And when you take those numbers and compare them to the rest of the world, that means Americans work more than almost every other nation. That we work, uh, she said, 137 hours more per year than Japanese workers, 260 hours more per year than British workers, and almost 500 hours more than the average French worker. But what was interesting about all the research is that despite how much more we work, we aren't any more productive. We do about the same amount. She said a large body of evidence, and she cites all these different studies, but she said there is a large body of evidence that proves that working harder, that overwork, doesn't make us any more productive. But in fact, more rest, regular breaks, tends to make people more productive. And so by the end of this essay, she is reaching a conclusion and she she asks, so why is this? If we all know it doesn't help us, Why do we all tend to work these long hours? Why do we all tend to overwork? And she says, well, maybe it's ignorance. Maybe some people haven't heard these facts before. But she says, perhaps it's something stronger. That's her conclusion. Perhaps it's something stronger. And I really agree with that. Because this reality goes far beyond just our work hours, right? A lot of us don't have those kind of nine to five jobs they're describing in the Harvard Business Review. But even if we don't, I think we can all understand this instinct. We can see this principle working in our lives, this belief that if we want something done, then we're the ones that have to make it happen. That the solution to our problems is to take matters into our own hands, to grind it out, to, to put it in a few more hours, to strain and stress until it just happens. And that self-reliance isn't true of you and I as individuals only. We do this as a church as well, right? We have a big move coming up. Now, maybe not on paper, right? Maybe on paper, going from Eggleston Square to Dudley Square doesn't seem like a big deal. Maybe if you told your friends that don't live in the city that we're moving a mile down the road, they would say, so what? But we know the truth, right? This is a big move. It's a big deal. This, this kind of move could very easily destroy the church that we have. Or, if done well, it could be the beginning of a new season of fruitfulness and vitality for our church. It could be a great thing. Well, our tendency as a church to know that's coming up Our tendency is to say, well, then we better start working. It's time to get doing. Let's put in the extra hours. Let's read the books. Let's do the research. Let's find all the strategies. Let's come up with a good game plan to ensure our success. Whether it's corporately or individually, when we come to these points where we have uncertainty in our future, then our tendency is to work hard. Our tendency is to to bear down and ensure that we're going to get the outcome we want. But David, here in this psalm, takes a very different approach. He says, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. He declares from the outset that his refuge is in the Lord. Now, we got a lot of Christians here in this room. I'm sure. A lot of you would say that as well. You would also say that God is your refuge. But I think if you were to be honest, if we were to be honest and look at the ways that we actually live our lives, you wouldn't be able to tell. The truth is our refuge is ourselves. We rest in and we trust in our own strength and our own effort. And that's a terrible place to be. When you live your life that way, when you are quick to act, when you are quick to do, when you are quick to depend on yourself, then your life ends up kind of back and forth between two extremes. You know, on one hand, you have this prideful, arrogant, here are all the things that I've accomplished. Look at all the work that I've done. Aren't I so great? And then on the other hand, you have this fearful anxiety that looks out at all the stuff that's in front of you and you say, How am I ever going to be able to do all that? And what's going to happen to me if I fail? That's where most of us live. Maybe on both sides multiple times during the day. But when you live in self-reliance, you are always trapped somewhere on that that, uh, continuum between pride and fear. But now compare that again to David. He says in verse 8, I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. That's not pride. That's not fear. That is rest, it's peace, it's confidence. It's real security. He says, even if I fail miserably, even if I die, you will not abandon me. That's the kind of confidence we all want, isn't it? That's where we all want to be. So how do we get there? How do we break free of that deep-seated pattern of self-reliance? How do we become dependent people? Well, that's why I want to talk about some disciplines, the disciplines of dependence. Now, it's funny, because disciplines, you know, are things that you do. And so here I am, and I'm trying to tell you, how do you stop relying on yourself? Well, here's some things you can do, (laughs) right? It it doesn't quite line up. The the way out of self-reliance, it doesn't make a ton of sense that it would be to do some work. But I want to tell you the first, I'm going to tell, tell you four things. And the first of these things is not something you can actually do. It's not something that you can accomplish. It's something that has to happen to you. But I'm calling it a discipline because it's not something that happens once, but it's something that must happen to you over and over and over again. And that is simply this you need to see your desperation. The first discipline of a prayerfully dependent life is that you need to see your desperation. Verse 2, David says, You are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. David starts off by saying, I have nothing good apart from you. If this life is up to me, then I am doomed. If anything good is going to happen, it's not going to come from inside, but it's going to come from outside. David starts off by seeing the true state of his heart. He recognizes that he is completely desperate for the Lord. And that's the first step towards dependence. There, and there is no way to practice it. There is no way to teach that. There is no way for you to set your, your minds on it and obtain it. The only way for you to, to practice this is for the Holy Spirit to show up. The only way for you to see your dependence is if the Holy Spirit shows up and reveals your neediness. And He will. When Melissa and I first moved to the neighborhood to begin the work of planting the church, I, looking back, realized that I came in with a lot of self reliance. I had already been planting a church for a few years. I had gone to, to seminary and gotten a degree. I'd read a bunch of books about church planting. I'd been to a bunch of conferences about plant ch- church planting. And while I had in my mind that it would be difficult, I was certain that it was only going to be a few weeks, maybe maybe a month or two, before we'd be ready to go. Well, 15 months later, 15 months after arriving in the neighborhood, we had Nothing to show for our work. I had nothing to show for countless 50, 60, 70-hour work weeks I'd put in, except a life that was full of anxiety, a bunch of relationships in the community that were strained by my neediness, and a marriage that was falling apart because I was anxious and I was overworked. In that moment, in those months following, the Spirit blessed me by convicting me of that. He showed me that much of what I had been doing, I was doing in my own strength. He showed me what I hope that you will see today, that we are all as desperate as David is here. None of us have any good, apart from God. And maybe you already know that. Maybe you are in one of those hard places right now. But maybe not. Maybe you don't see it yet. But this is the truth. We are powerless to do anything apart from God. And until we see that, we are doomed. Until we recognize that, we are useless. But the good news is, God sends His Spirit for exactly that reason. Jesus says in John chapter 16 that He's leaving, but the Spirit's coming, and when the Spirit comes, He is going to convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. He says the main job of the Holy Spirit in our life is to show us that we are needy people, to show us that we don't have it all together. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The hallmark of the people of God is that they can make this declaration that we are poor in spirit, that we come to God empty-handed, that we have nothing to offer, that there is nothing good in us. And that's not just a one-time thing. This is a constant work that the Spirit does in our lives over and over again, freshly every day. But without that desperation, without that work of the Spirit, you will never become dependent people. We will never become a dependent church. But once that does happen, there are some things that we can do to lean into it. There are some things that we can do to to grow in our sense of dependence. And you find those things here. They are fellowship, prayer, and Sabbath. Fellowship, prayer, and Sabbath. And verse 3 he says, As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. David says that his delight is in the people of God. He's the king, and yet he still identifies himself so closely with all of the people who worship God that he says, these people are my delight. And I think it's almost, maybe you have never thought about this before, but but if you want to become a dependent person, you should get around other dependent people. If you want to grow into a person who is prayerfully dependent on the Lord, then you should fellowship with people who depend on the Lord. When you fellowship with other believers, you start to learn more about the greatness of your God. Paul says the church is a body with many parts. Meaning that that we are people who come with different skills, with different histories, with different experiences. And here in Boston, in this international city where people are coming from all over, that's even more the case. Each of us, we have have seen the Lord in ways that others haven't. And each of us comes in with bad habits. And so when we're here together worshiping, you might find that your bad tendencies, those places where you tend to trust in yourself, those places where you tend to be self-reliant, you might see your brother and sister in Christ who actually knows how to trust the Lord. As we worship with one another, we learn how big of a Savior we actually have. We see new ways that we can rest in the presence of our God. So fellowship is the first thing. Secondly is prayer. It shouldn't be a huge surprise that part of being prayerfully dependent is that we need to pray. Dependent people pray. David was a man of prayer. This whole psalm, it is a prayer. That's what the psalms are. This is one of dozens of psalms that we have from David where he is pouring out his heart before the God, pouring pouring out his heart before God, his, his joys, his sorrows, his pain, his hardship. But preaching about prayer is hard. I've been preaching for a little while now. I've gotten to preach on prayer a couple times every year. I've read a bunch of books on prayer. But I've come to the conclusion that there are just no shortcuts. There's nothing that I can say to you right now that's going to teach you how to pray. There are, there's no shortcut to becoming a man of prayer. There's no shortcut to becoming a woman of prayer. In this world where our attention spans are are ever eroding, right? Where we can't even watch a 5-minute YouTube video without hitting the screen a few times just to make sure it's not going to be too much longer. How are we going to learn to pray? We're not going to accidentally become people of prayer. We're not going to accidentally stumble into 30 minutes of prayer. But that doesn't change the fact that we have to pray. We have to try to pray. You've got to find a way to pray. You have to figure out something that's going to work. Whether it's setting an egg timer for five minutes or turning off your phone or going to bed early or waking up early, we have to pray because we cannot do this on our own. Do you realize? Apart from God, we are in a hopeless situation here. We are too weak. You are too weak. We have an enemy. We have an enemy who tempts us. Jesus says that Satan prowls around like a lion looking for someone to devour. He wants to sift you like wheat, He wants to blow you away. The people that you love. The people that surround us in the community, the people that we care about that don't know Jesus, the Bible says they're dead in their trespasses. They're dead. Are you going to bring dead people back to life? I don't think so. We have to find a way to pray because we are desperate. We are hopeless. We are helpless. And you know, maybe that's the secret. Maybe that is the secret, that we need to see that more. When somebody is diagnosed with cancer, you don't have to tell them to pray. They do it on their own because they know the odds are against them. They know without help, they're doomed. Without help, The odds are against us here. Without hope, the odds are against us as we move into Dudley Square. But we have help. We have a Savior who is longing to answer our prayers. And so I want to say, if you can't pray at all, if you just can't figure it out, if you can't get yourself together to pray for a minute, if you can only pray four words, what I want to encourage you to pray today is these four words. Lord, make me desperate. But if you do pray that, watch out. (laughs) Fellowship. Prayer. And finally, The other discipline is is the Sabbath. People who truly depend on the Lord, they know how to rest. We're going to spend a whole week talking about the Sabbath soon, so I don't have much time to talk about it right now. But here I just want to mention this. The people of God are commanded to do all their work in six days and to take the first day of the week as a day of rest and worship. And that's not because God needs your time. In fact, it's the opposite. God doesn't need your time. It is a reminder to us of where we stand in this universe. The Sabbath is meant to prove to us that very thing we can't believe, that that the world will go on without us, that the world can survive, that God doesn't need us, but we desperately need Him. The Sabbath is a reminder that we need to rest in the presence of God a lot more than this world needs us to put in another workday. And friends, folks, the Sabbath commandment, it's one of the Ten Commandments, it is a gift to us. We live in a world where we struggle to thinking that we are too important to stop. We live in a world where we feel guilty for taking a nap. And here, God says, You have to take the whole day off. And not just one day a year, not one day a month, one day a week, 52 days a year. He says, I want you to take about seven weeks off every year. Just do nothing. Just rest. Just be in my presence. Let me do the heavy lifting. The Sabbath commandment is, thou shalt take it easy once in a while. (laughs) And yet, somehow, that thing we just desperately want someone to tell us, that we can take a break, that we can rest, somehow we have managed to take that commandment and turn it into a burden. It's amazing what sin can do, right? (laughs) Right? Well, I can't say any more than this. People who are truly dependent on God rest in Him. They trust that God can manage the world just fine without their help. When we become a dependent church, we will be a church that knows how to rest. And I'm not talking about just people that go to church on Sundays. I mean that we will know how to rest. That we will know how to worship on the Sabbath. That we will know how to tithe a part of our week to God. It all starts with the Holy Spirit. Only the Holy Spirit can make us desperate. But through fellowship, through prayer, through the Sabbath, the Spirit can use those things to increase dependence in our lives. So lastly, I want to talk about really quickly here the dividends of dependence the reward of dependence. I just spent a little bit of time telling you about all the things we do wrong, the ways we don't do this right, and then I gave you some strategies and some steps, a few things that will improve this. But the reason I picked this psalm and the reason I really like this psalm is because David doesn't do any of that stuff. David doesn't give any steps like I just did. Instead, he writes a poem. Instead, David paints a picture for us. He shows us what a prayerfully dependent life looks like. And as you read it, if you just take this home this week and and, and read it by yourself and and try to absorb what you read, it's beautiful. It's a beautiful picture of what our lives can look like. It is this life that is overflowing with joy. It is a heart that is overflowing with peace, regardless of difficult circumstances. He says, the Lord, verse 5, is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. He says, the Lord is my portion. The Lord is my portion. His life, His joy is not based on His belonging. It's not based on the things He has. Instead, His inheritance is God Himself. And I didn't realize this when I I first read it, but as I studied it, I, I, I found this out. In that verse, he's actually referring back to the book of Numbers. He's referring back to this point in history where God is setting up the priesthood. And he's telling Aaron what life is going to be like for him and his family. And he says there in Numbers, what verse is it? Uh, He says, And the Lord said to Aaron, You shall have no inheritance in their land. Neither shall you have any portion among you. I am your portion and your inheritance among the people of Israel. He says, unlike all the other tribes, you guys aren't going to have any land. You're not going to have any portion among the people because I am your portion. And when David quotes this, you see where his heart is. David knew that the priests weren't getting the short end of the stick. David knew that the priests were getting the blessing. David's heart wasn't fixed on his possessions. It wasn't fixed on his wealth or his kingdom building. It wasn't fixed on making a name for himself. He knew that God was all he needed. Wouldn't we all love to say that same thing for ourselves? In verse 11 he says, You make known to me the paths of life. Your presence, In your presence there is fullness of joy at your right hand or pleasures forevermore. David's life is characterized by this anticipation of everlasting joy in the presence of God. His hope wasn't fixed on the problems right in front of him. His hope wasn't fixed on the moment. It was fixed on God. Despite his weakness, despite his sin, despite his failings, despite being face-to-face with uncertainty, despite even being face-to-face with death itself, his life has joy at the center. His life had joy at the center regardless of circumstance. I think that sounds awesome. Well, the amazing thing about that is, David's nothing special. David is, is nothing more than what was promised to every single one of us. Jesus said, I came that you would have life and have it abundantly. But how do we do that? How do we have an abundant life? How do we access that fullness that David is talking about? How do we experience that abundance? Well, here's the most amazing part. It's at the very end of our psalm. He says, Therefore, My heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. David is rejoicing here. But what's he rejoicing in? Why is he excited at, at this point? Well, we don't have to guess. We could guess all day long, but but the good news is for us, in the New Testament, both Peter and Paul tell us what David's talking about here. He's talking about Jesus. The reason that David has confidence, the reason that David can depend on God regardless of circumstance is because of Jesus. Because in this moment where David is facing the possibility of death, where David is dealing with great uncertainty... The thing he sees is the hope of the cross. Jesus is the one that David talks about when he says, your holy one will not see corruption. You see, in that moment of of pain, in that moment of of uncertainty and doubt, he saw the one who was going to come. Jesus, who was going to come on the cross and pay the penalty for our self-reliance who is going to pay the penalty for our pride and the penalty for our insecurity, the penalty for our fear and anxiety. That on the cross, Jesus would die for those sins, but instead of rotting in the grave, instead of having his body corrupted, it says on the third day he rose again. He conquered death. He conquered our enemy, and he is now the firstborn from the dead. That that He is the proof that our hope is secure, that, that as we look to Him, we will all one day be with Him in pleasure forevermore. That is the way to abundance. Faith and repentance. And so that's my call to us this morning. It's that we would stop relying on ourselves. That we would look to Jesus That we would look to Him for fullness of joy. That we would come to Him in desperation. That we would come to His church. That we would come to Him in prayer. That we would come to Him in Sabbath rest. I want to challenge us that we would become dependent people today. That you would trust Him as you leave this room. As you go out into whatever challenges there are ahead of you this week. That you would depend upon Him. That we would depend upon him as we go out of here, as we go out of Urbano into this next chapter in the life of our church, as we go into Dudley Square, that we would trust and that we would rest in him today. Let's follow David and let's go in prayer. Father, I pray that you would uh, hear our prayers. Lord, that you would make us a dependent people. God, I pray that you would teach us that we have nothing good apart from you and that as we learn it, we would believe it. Father, would you work in us and transform our lives? In Christ's name, amen.